Well, this is a big year in the Holmes family. I have four kids, and uh, two of my daughters are graduating this year. One from college and one from high school. And um, yeah, amen. And uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You know what comes with graduation? Lots of pictures. You start taking pictures to commemorate the moment, and you also start looking back on pictures. And when you look back on pictures, it's like, um, what happened to the time? Look how fast my kids have grown up. Look how much they've changed. And then to be honest, there's a little part of it's like, hey, let's just ignore the fact how much you've grown up, right? So I got to block that out, how much I've changed. But, but pictures, they capture our physical growth. You, you can look at pictures over the years, you can see change. But let me ask you something. How do you think we capture or evaluate our spiritual growth? Have you ever asked yourself that? Like, hey, how am I growing? How am I maturing in godliness and Christ-likeness? I think sometimes we look wrongly at the external performance. Like, hey, well, I go to church a lot. Or I might give a lot, right? Go to Bible study. Or we might assume just that with more knowledge, the more I know God's word, then therefore certainly the more mature I am. Or it might be an experience. The more I experience, maybe it's a spiritual retreat or um, a concert you've been to or a worship event, how you feel. You're like, it's a sign of spiritual maturity. And, and I propose to you that our spiritual maturity is not measured by our external barometer, but an inner transformation of the heart. It's a transformation of the heart. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our series of, of 1 Peter. And if you've been with us, you know that First Peter was written to a group of believers who've experienced persecution, and because of that persecution, they've been pushed out of their home, their exiles. And um, now they're uh, in what is modern-day Turkey for the, for the most part. They've been pushed out of Israel and pushed up north, and they're experiencing suffering. And Peter writes to encourage them, hey, this is how you live despite the suffering that you're experiencing. He reminds them that they have a glorious future, an inheritance through what Christ accomplished for them. He calls them to holiness, that they are to, as believers, as Christians, their lives is to reflect the character of God. And what we're gonna see today is that he's gonna say, hey, here are three ways that that the evidence of your, of your life, of spiritual maturity, is going to be shown to others and that you can look at. And so I want to use this beginning in uh, chapter 1, verse 22, and I want us to look at this together, and you're going to see as I read this that there's three signs of spiritual maturity, spiritual growth that he's going to talk about as we walk with the Lord. And the first one is a love for others, a greater love for others. The second is similar to that. It's the opposite of that. The more you love others is a hatred for sin. And then third is a hunger for truth. So let's 
Look at this together, beginning in chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. Grass withers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The first thing you see here that Peter says is, is that we are to love earnestly. Let's look at this again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The, the picture here behind earnestly is, is one who stretches out. It's not like, hey, love when it's convenient for you. Love when it's easy. No, it's, hey, we, we love, we take efforts, we stretch out, we go to full extent to love other people. But we don't do this because we just try harder or we discipline ourselves or we will ourselves to love others. Notice what he says. There's two perfect participles here. It's where grammar actually pays off, which tells us that something happened in the past and then that therefore should impact our today. Notice what he says, two things, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. And then verse 23, since you have been born again, the idea is, hey, something's happened to you. What's happened to us? When we have received the word of God, when we have believed the gospel, God purifies us. He creates us into a new creation. We have been regenerated. We have been reborn. When the gospel takes root, when the seed of the gospel takes root in our hearts, our lives are transformed. That's what he's saying when he, when he says in verse 23 and 24, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Notice what he says at 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. And he quotes Isaiah 40 that the Bible's all one book, it has one message. It all points to who Jesus is and his message of salvation and reconciliation. That when we recognize that we are a sinful people who have rebelled against God, every last one of us, that we offer nothing to God, but Jesus Christ in his kindness, his love, and his grace, he pursued us despite our rebellion. And he paid the penalty for our sin on the cross serving as our substitute. He died and three days later rose again, validating all he claimed, said, and did that through the cross, a rebellious, sinful people can be reconciled to a holy, righteous God. When we recognize what it is that God has done for us, it's based on that love, we are able to love others. We have been transformed by Christ to love like Christ. If you wanna know, hey, how am I doing? What's a healthy barometer for whether or not I'm growing spiritually and maturing? The question is to ask yourself, how am I doing at loving other people? 
Love is the hallmark of the Christian faith. In fact, Jesus says in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you what? Memorize more scripture, come to church more often, give more, stay away from certain behaviors, certain people, no. If you love, if you love others the way in which I have loved you, if you allow the, the gospel to take root in your heart, surrender to my spirit, then that gospel is able to transform your life. Romans 1, 16, Paul says, for the gospel is the very power of God for salvation. In 1 Corinthians, he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, when we receive it, transforms us so that we can then love others. Paul's going to say in 1 Timothy, he's going to say the goal of our instruction, the goal of all of our preaching is not just for you to learn more, but is love, for you to love God, love others more. Love is the hallmark of the Christian faith. 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that we love God. This is so important. In this is love. Not that we love God. We did not choose God. But God loved us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He stretched out. He loved us earnestly. 1 John 4 again. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Paid our penalty. Died the death we deserved so that we might have life. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, if God loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. That's the transforming power of the gospel. That's the call. That's the hallmark of the Christian life is a love for others. Now, I want to be really clear because love today is a really squishy term, if you will, right? It, like, it now de needs definition because there's a way in which the world defines love and then there's a way in which the Bible defines love. And we've got to be really clear on this. Otherwise, we're completely misunderstood, right? The world defines love as originating within you. However, you define love, what you believe to be love, what is true for you, what is your truth. Quite simply, love is love, is what is argued. Now hang with me philosophically. Is that really true? We're told today that, um, that to love someone is to have an un unquestioned acceptance of an individual's choices. Love is love. It resides within them in your acceptance to believe and accept what they believe. However fleeting, romantic, or what sentiment it might be. But the Bible says something completely different about love. The Bible roots the definition of love in the character and attribute of God. That it's not fleeting. That it's not up to us to determine. No, it's really specific. 1 Corinthians 13, love is defined like this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. 
It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but notice, but rejoices with the truth. This is so important. Biblically, love and truth always go hand in hand. Love and truth always go hand in hand. And you see this most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Always true, always loving. But today, we, we bifurcate these two ideas wrongly, right? And I, and I want you to stop and I just want you to think about this with me. There are some of us, this room is going to be split. About 50% of us, we're the all truth people. We camp on, well, this is what is true. And then there's about 50% of us, we're all love people. And if you don't know who you are, ask those in your community group and they'll tell you. Right? You know the all love people. The all love people want to just chapter and verse you, tell you how you can grow, what you need to change, what is true. They're there to correct you. Right? And, man, I can empathize with that. I, I've, I have been there. I've been the all truth guy. And in my zeal to want to tell the truth, really what I've done is I've just given myself license to be a jerk. But I, but I cloak myself in, hey, I'm just telling you the truth. But is that loving? And then there's others of us over here where it's, hey, well, that's not loving. But then we sacrifice the truth, and I've done that, and why do I do that? Because I want to be a people pleaser. I want to avoid that conflict. I don't want to hurt someone. I don't want them to think less of me. But is that loving? Not biblically. Love and truth biblically always go hand in hand. It's not a juxtaposition. And we're called to love one another earnestly. We're even friends to love those people. Do you know who those people are in your life? Let me help you. It's those people you talk about that don't look like you, don't think like you, don't vote like you. Now you're starting to understand, right? It's those people. Or it's those people that drove in the left-hand lane on the way to church this morning about 10 miles per hour below the speed limit while on their phone and completely frustrated you. I want you just to think for a second about whoever those people are for you. You have a category for that. It's those people that are hardest for you to love. It might be the high drama people in your life. And you're like, man, it's just, whoo. I don't want to stretch out for you. Just, if you stay over there, I'll love you great. But is that really what, what we're called to do? Jesus says in Matthew 5, he says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I mean, I just want you to think about this for a second. If you love those who look like you, think like you, behave like you, vote like you, what really are you doing? 
Who are you in love with? Yourself. You're in love just with yourself. And God's calling us, friends, to love others who may be hard to love. God's calling us to, to extend ourselves, which might come at a cost, not to love them out of our own effort and strength, but because God has first loved us. That's the transforming work of the gospel in our lives, that we love because Christ first loved us. How are you doing in growing in Christ's likeness and maturing in the faith? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself, how am I doing at loving people? How am I doing at loving those who are hard for me to love? It might be the cold, callous neighbor next door. It might be the employee you work with who just drives you crazy, who just talks too much. It might be the overly political uncle who ruins every Thanksgiving. I don't know. But how are you doing loving those people? The second sign of spiritual growth that's very related to this is obviously uh, in, found in verse 1, related to, to love for others, is also a hatred for sin. Notice what he says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. These are five relationship killers. So if you love people well, you're going to want to get rid of these five relationship killers. And I want to explain each one. The first one is malice. What is malice? Well, malice is a desire to harm or hurt someone. You've been hurt, so what do you want to do? You want to hurt them. And then there's deceit, just a deliberate dishonesty for whatever motive. It could be insecurity, it could be greed, selfishness, self-protection, but we deceive. And Peter's going, hey, you've got to throw these things away. You've got to get rid of these. Put these away, he says. All malice, all deceit, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is saying one thing, but living another. And we're all guilty of this. To some extent or another, we're all hypocrites. Right? We say one thing, but then we, we do another. That's hypocrisy. He mentions envy. Do you know what envy is? Many people just assume envy is the same thing as jealousy. It's not the, that's not the case. Envy is far more sinister than jealousy. Jealousy is I'm just jealous of the fact that you drive a nicer car than I do. But envy is what Shakespeare called the green monster. Because when you had envy, you looked sick. You were green with envy. Because envy is not just that you drive a nicer car than I do, but I resent the fact that you drive that car and I want to take it from you. It's not just good enough for me to go get a nice car that I can drive and you can have one too. No, 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 no. I resent your advantage and I want to take that from you. And only I should drive that car. That's what envy is. Peter's going, man, you got to get rid of envy. That's a relationship killer. And you got to get rid of slander. Slander is harming someone's reputation. That's just willfully going about and telling other people news and word and gossip 
and information that's just going to slander, hurt their reputation in view of others. Case in point, see Twitter, right? It's just a dumpster fire of slander. Not always healthy, sometimes informative, but man can be hurtful. And so what you see here, I love the, the force of this verb, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Put that away. It's like throw it away. You got to run from it. In my home with six people living in my house, we not only have trash that's built into the cabinets. We went to the container store and got two standalone trash cans to put outside of our kitchen island because so much trash is accumulated. Right? But it's like a game in our home, an unspoken game. I don't know how many of y'all play this, but it seems to me that everybody stuffs enough trash in there that they can. And then when it gets to the top, it's like, how much trash can I balance on top without feeling the responsibility that I need to now take this out? And so I'll just keep piling it on right there in the hope that, you know, well, maybe it just stays right there. It's okay. And somebody else could take it out because I'm busy. Anybody ever done that? All right. Yeah, thank you. All the people raise your hand. You're honest. And I appreciate that. Right? I get it. Because what do we do? We're great at collecting and piling up trash. And what we need to do is we need to take it out. We've got to take it out. That's what Peter's saying. Hey, you don't want to know what's killing your relationships? You know what's hurting and hindering your ability to connect with others? Do you want people to keep a distance from you at work or why you want to keep a distance from others? It's these five things. And we got to hate them. We want to get them out of our lives and not let them accumulate, not keep balancing them and tolerating them, but get rid of them. But that's so much easier said than done, isn't it? So much easier said than done. Because number one, we live in an outrage culture where the more you express your outrage, the more authentic it feels, the better you feel. It's a win at all costs, demonize the other side, say what you want, culture we live in. Cut them out, cancel them, run from them. They're bad, they're the enemy. And so we slander, we have malice in our hearts, and those in our tribe, they applaud us. And we feel good about it because we said the truth. Peter's going, hey man, that's not of Christ. Those are five relationship killers that are gonna hurt you. Wisdom says, Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Only a fool gives full vent to his anger, but wisdom is those who hold it back. It's also hard to put away these five relationship killers because we've been hurt. Just face it. Hurt people hurt people. And because we've been hurt, we let the trash pile up in our lives instead of taking it out. Again, you don't take out the trash by your own efforts. You ask God to help you, empower you by his spirit to remove that from your heart so that you can love, so that you can forgive. And the more you pursue God and his spirit and his word, what happens is 
your affections begin to change. And God does a work in your life and you pursue people and what once tasted good is no longer appetizing. You don't want to respond with malice anymore. You don't want to respond with deceit. But hurt people hurt people. It feels good to get them back. It's just not of Christ. And thirdly, it's easier said than done because it's easier to see these traits, these sins in other people than in our own lives. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? It's just easier for us to see hypocrisy in somebody else and we just don't like it. It's easier for us to, to hear malice in somebody's word or slander coming out of somebody else's mouth before we recognize it in our own lives. We, we need people to help us. We need people to point out to us, hey man, the words you're using right now or what you just posted or what you just said or what you just sent, do you think, do you think that's a wise choice? Does that represent the king we say we love, we want to serve and to follow? I know it may feel good for a moment, but is that what we represent and who we are? My son and I went and took um, golf lessons when we were on vacation last summer. And while we were walking out to the range, you walk by all the, you know, little stations out on the course. And, and when you do that, you can't help but notice everybody's golf swing. Right? Some are pretty good, pretty decent. Others, you're like, hey, son, not that. Don't do that. Right? And so we go and we have an, our instructor and he's helping us work on our swing. And then um, the guy says to us, he goes, hey, you know what? Um, why don't y'all come inside? We have a simulator where you're going to swing and then I'll be able to video you and I'm going to show you your swing and you can see what it is you're doing, what I'm trying to get across to you. So I'm like, okay. So we go inside and, um, and I, I swing, you know, probably 12 times, whatever. He captures everything on video, and then he plays it back for me. And then you know what I recognize? I recognize it is time for me to sell my clubs. <laughs> like it's over. There's no hope for me. I make Charles Barkley look terrific. And if you've ever seen his golf swing, you know what I'm talking about. I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I'm really glad you showed this to me. What must people think when they watch me play golf? Other than let's just love that guy and tell him, hey, quit the game of golf. But it was really helpful because I got to see my swing, things I wouldn't have noticed on my own. We need people to help us. You know, we've got relationship killers in our lives that's contributing to how people are experiencing our community group and our workplace and our family and our relationship with our kids and siblings, friends, neighbors. We're all, we're all prone and guilty of these. Just this week, I had um, lunch with the guys in my community group, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, a very live example of some things they had just shared with me because I, I know they care, but I was 
tremendously guilty of negative interpretation. And I felt defensive, frustrated. Candidly, I just wanted to withdraw, like push him away. But it was so good for me just to have somebody just say, hey, can I, I just want, stay with me, Blake. I want you to hear me. They didn't give up on me, but they loved me earnestly. It's where I could see my golf swing. I could see the attitude I had, how I was negatively interpreting their actions, that I could say to them, hey, man, will you forgive me? Because um, I have not believed the best about what you've said. It's affecting us. i got to get rid of that. And instead, if I'm not careful, I'm going to let that trash pile up. And even worse, right, I'll go digging in the trash. And that resentment over time is, is going to hurt us and it's going to hurt me. And so what I want to tell you is, is that we're called to throw away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and get it out of our lives because we're going to be held accountable, gang, for every careless word and post. You realize that? Every careless word and post we're going to be held accountable for. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Matthew 12, 36. That verse always stops me cold in my tracks. Every careless word. So one sign of spiritual growth is our love for others. We love others more earnestly. Another sign of spiritual growth is we hate sin. We hate the things God hates. And the third sign of spiritual growth is a hunger for the truth. Look again what he says in verse 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may what? Grow up. You may mature spiritually. Grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And that's assuming, that's a, a conditional statement, assuming, hey, you, you know that God is good. And so what happens is that for, um, for those of us who are pursuing God, we develop a greater hunger for the things that he desires. We have a greater appetite to know him, to know his word. And I love the metaphor here because it's, it's so easy for us to understand. I mean, any new parent gets this. Because your baby cries eagerly and frequently. Wakes you up at night. Why? Because they, that baby knows that apart from that milk, if he or she is not fed, she's not going to live. Her very life depends upon it. And so we're to, we're to come to God's word with a hunger, with a thirst to know him more. To seek his will. I um, whenever I go out of town, I think this has been a tradition for years. Whenever we go out of town as a family or I leave town, the very first meal I seek out when I come back is Tex-Mex. Every time. Doesn't matter where I go, California, Florida, New York, wherever I go, when I come back, I want to go eat Tex-Mex. Real Tex-Mex. Not, not California. Don't send me any emails. There is not Tex-Mex in California. Right? But real Tex-Mex. I crave it. Because why? Because I've been gone. And, and I hunger for it. 
And I wonder just how many of us have a hunger to know God's word. More importantly, not just to know it for information's sake, but to know it so that we can know the mind and heart of God. We want to know God. But the reality is we can suppress our appetite for truth. We could do that when we fail to prioritize our time with the Lord. We just simply don't make time to read. We don't make time to gather on Sundays to hear the preaching of God's word. And when we do that, we suppress our appetite. Or when we do read or we do come, we're simply distracted. We have our phone, right? And there's a million distractions around us. We're not wholly attentive to, to what it is the Lord's trying to teach us. That suppresses our appetite, our hunger to want to know him more, to understand his word. Or even worse than that, it's what James warns us of in James 1 is, we're like the one who looks in a mirror but then doesn't do anything about it. We gain the information, but then we just disregard it. The one that just lives in disobedience. The more we hear God's word, but then we're like, you know what, forget it. I'm not going to respond to that. We suppress the truth of God in our lives. And I encourage you, friends, if, if reading God's word feels more like drudgery than a delight, I would encourage you to read prayerfully, just to go before the Lord and, and to ask his spirit to help you to see what you don't see and to hear what it is you don't hear on your own. And by the, the illumination of God's spirit to reveal to you his will for your life, and he will show up if you'll be quiet and you'll diligently seek him. Read devotionally. Right? Read not just to know more, but read devotionally to know the God who loves you. It's not just for information, but for transformation. We go to seek God, to know him, the God of scriptures. Read thoughtfully. Right? I feel like sometimes when we, so many people, when we go to God's word, we, we read it, but we read it as if um, we don't read it thoughtfully. When we come to questions, we don't scrutinize and ask questions and wrestle. We, like no other time in the history of the church, have so many resources available to us. So many books and teachers and um, resources that we can draw from so that we come to something, we can stop and we can go, hey, I don't know what this means. So we read thoughtfully. We read inquisitively. We come with a hunger to want to know and understand. The more we seek him, it's like the dimmer switch in our lives, right? The more we come, the more he reveals. The more we seek him, the more he reveals. The more he reveals, the more we want to know. And the light becomes brighter and brighter. And we understand more. And we read also corporately. I can't say it enough that, I mean, join the journey is an effort for us to read God's word together. It's fun to receive texts from those I'm living life with, you know, in the morning, hey, this is what I got out of our time in the journey. And, and I, I learn from them and we're reading it together and we're talking about it. We're asking ourselves questions or this is what I need to confess in light of that or I don't understand that verse or why is that even there or how appropriate is that for me today or hey, I read this and I'm praying for you. So we read together. Why? Because we have a hunger to know God more. 
I um, recently went with my wife to the symphony, and that's a stretch for me, right? This George Strait fan doesn't really go to symphonies. But I was looking forward to going, and I said, you know what, to go and to really appreciate this, I need to, I need to learn a little bit about this. So I made it a point to listen every day for that week. I was just going to listen to what it is we were going to hear. And then that took me to, okay, now I'm listening to it. And candidly, I kind of don't get it right now, but I'm listening, trying to understand. And then I, I take what's essentially a mini course in classical music. I learn about the Baroque period and the classical period, the Romantic period. I learn about the, what happens during the, um, the traits of all of those. And now I'm becoming a little um, more interested. And, and then I'm listening to, to different composers. And I'm like, well, I, I like that one. I, that one I could do without. And, and I'm learning about the history and when they wrote. And then I go and I listen to the symphony. And I'm with my wife, and I'm recognizing, hey, wait a minute, this isn't just the music. It's remarkable, I mean, to actually watch that many people, from the strings to the horns to percussion to piano, everyone making an incredible sound. And although I may not be officially a classical guy, what I recognized is more and more I could appreciate the genius behind the music. Because what the music did is it helped point me to the composer, like who wrote that? What was in their mind? How did, how did they think of that? And when we come to scripture, gang, I propose to you that when you read scripture, the Bible is 66 books with 40 different authors written over 1,500 years and there is one that it speaks of, one that it points to. It is Jesus Christ, the great composer, the great writer of the symphony. You have the historical books, the poetical books, the prophetical books. You have the gospels, historical books. You have epistles, apocalyptic. And it, when all comes together, it makes for one sound communicating the message and the love of Jesus Christ. And when we listen, we fall more in love, not just with the sound and the beauty of what we see, but the one who wrote it. And I want to encourage you to sit and listen. I want to encourage you to know the God who loves you. And the more you love others, and the more you hate sin, and the more you hunger for the truth, the more then we will grow in Christ's likeness. I want you now to hear from a friend of mine Sarah Fusco, who's going to come up and just share with you ways in which God's been at work in her heart. My name is Sarah Fusco, and I currently have the privilege of teaching high school science at the most amazing Christian private school and leading a women's Bible study here on Thursday nights. And it's also my privilege to get to share a little of God's story in my life with you today. I didn't grow up in a God-fearing home or a God-loving home. In fact, we never talked about God in my home. We didn't talk about much of anything of worth. And when I tried, I was told my feelings were wrong. So I learned not to share them. I stuffed all the hard stuff inside, including the physical and sexual abuse I suffered when I was a kid. 
I didn't have a good relationship with my parents. How can you without communication? So I sought the attention and recognition I desperately desired through trying to be perfect in everything I did. What a crushing existence that was. Thankfully, God met me where I was through two friends who started a Bible study my junior year of high school. At the first meeting, I heard about Christ dying on the cross, which I had heard before, but it went further. I heard about him wanting a relationship with me, with me. How could that be? I wasn't certain of the answer, but I wanted that relationship. That night, I accepted Christ's provision for me through his death and resurrection. I admitted my sin and my need for a savior, and that night, I became a daughter of the king. But even as my new reality settled in, I still felt unworthy and unlovable. College opened a whole new world of opportunities for me. I was still searching for worth, value, security, and love, and now I had a myriad of inappropriate places to look for it. Many wrong choices left me feeling even more unworthy and unlovable. But God, aren't those two amazing words? But God was pursuing me the whole time. The next year, he brought those same two girls to play soccer with me in college. Through them and other faithful friends, I learned what it meant to walk with God, and God was faithful to change my heart. My desires were changing. I began turning away from the selfish, worldly ways I had been living that were leading me deeper into depression and darkness. I had a new desire to obey God. I started attending a church near the college campus, and the pastor and his wife took me under his wing. 25 years later, that couple with their now two grown kids are my family. Because of their love and encouragement, I started counseling with another leader from the church. I needed to process the hurts of the past abuse and my family upbringing. But before we dug into those deep wounds, we studied scripture. My counselor would give me a short passage of scripture to dig into, and the next time we met, the two of us would study it together. We did this for months. And it was exactly what I needed. I needed to know who God says I am. I needed to know his truth before I could combat the lies that I believed. This process developed in me a hunger for God's word. Psalm 139 was paramount in me understanding where my worth comes from and establishing for me that I am worthy and lovable. When we did finally dig into my issues, Knowing God's truth and his unchanging character and goodness helped me find peace. As in Romans 12, 2, God was and continues to transform my heart and mind with his truth. One of my favorite reminders in the Bible, it's found multiple times, including Deuteronomy 31, 6, where God promises to never leave or forsake us. And for someone with major trust issues, this was life-altering. I finally found somebody worthy of full trust, someone who wouldn't abandon me, someone I could always go to and tell my feelings and experiences to without rebuke. I found God to be my safe place. I can confidently proclaim that I am worthy. I am loved and I am secure in Christ. It is in him I find my satisfaction and contentment. Today, as I abide with him, he empowers me to pour into the lives of others. I get to do this daily at school and with dear friends. 
but also through other opportunities like leading at women's Bible study and mentoring younger women. The more I study God's word and rely on him, the more he equips and uses me to positively affect the lives of those around me. I find immense joy in sharing God's truth with others. God has redeemed my story over and over. Every time I get the opportunity to speak into another's hurts and painful past, God is glorified and my past is redeemed. I get to comfort others how God has comforted me. And I know that God did not desire a painful past for any of us, but I also know that he is good and he can use our past pain for good. I'm truly humbled that he allows me to be a vessel through which he can pour out truth and love for his glory. And I can't step from this platform without adamantly encouraging you to dig into God's word, his truth. It is informative and it is transformative. It is beautiful and it is sweet. It is a giant love letter written to each of us. And I pray that you will know it more deeply, obey it more fully, and share it more freely. To God be the glory.